Chapter Seven, Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristin Lemoyne, GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Seven. Knights. With a long retinue of their squires, in gaudy liveries march and quaint attires. One laced the helm, another held the lance, a third the shining buckler did advance. The courser pawed the ground with restless feet, and snorting foamed and champed the golden bit. The smiths and armorers on palfreys ride, files in their hands, and hammers at their side. And nails for loosened spears and thongs for shields provide. The yeomen guard the streets in seemly bands, and clowns come crowding on with cudgels in their hands. Palamon and Arcite. The condition of the English nation was at this time sufficiently miserable. King Richard was absent a prisoner. And in the power of the perfidious and cruel Duke of Austria, even the very place of his captivity was uncertain, and his fate but very imperfectly known to the generality of his subjects, who were in the meantime a prey to every species of subaltern oppression. Prince John, in league with Philip of France, Coeur de Lion's mortal enemy, was using every species of influence with the Duke of Austria to prolong the captivity of his brother Richard, to whom he stood indebted for so many favors. In the meantime, he was strengthening his own faction in the kingdom, of which he proposed to dispute the succession in case of the king's death with the legitimate heir, Arthur, Duke of Brittany, son of Geoffrey Plantagenet, the elder brother of John. This usurpation, it is well known, he afterwards effected. His own character being light, profligate, and perfidious, John easily attached to his person and faction not only all who had reason to dread the resentment of Richard for criminal proceedings during his absence, but also the numerous class of lawless resolutes, whom the Crusades had turned back on their country, accomplished in the vices of the East. Impoverished in substance and hardened in character, and who placed their hopes of harvest in civil commotion. To these causes of public distress and apprehension must be added the multitude of outlaws who, driven to despair by the oppression of the feudal nobility and the severe exercise of the forest laws, banded together in large gangs and keeping possession of the forests and the wastes. Set at defiance the justice and magistracy of the country. The nobles themselves, each fortified within his own castle, and playing the petty sovereign over his own dominions, were the leaders of bands scarce less lawless and oppressive than those of the avowed depredators. To maintain these retainers and to support the extravagance and magnificence which their pride induced them to affect. The nobility borrowed sums of money from the Jews at the most usurious interest, which gnawed into their estates like consuming cankers, scarce to be cured unless when circumstances gave them an opportunity of getting free, by exercising upon their creditors some act of 
unprincipled violence. Under the various burdens imposed by this unhappy state of affairs, the people of England suffered deeply for the present, and had yet more dreadful cause to fear for the future. To augment their misery, a contagious disorder of a dangerous nature spread through the land, and rendered more virulent by the uncleanness, the indifferent food, and the wretched lodging of the lower classes, swept off many whose fate the survivors were tempted to envy, as exempting them from the evils which were to come. Yet amid these accumulated distresses, the poor as well as the rich, the vulgar as well as the noble, in the event of a tournament which was the grand spectacle of that age, felt as much interest as the half-starved citizen of Madrid, who has not a real left to buy provisions for his family, feels in the issue of a full beast. Neither duty nor infirmity could keep youth or age from such exhibitions. The passage of arms, as it was called, which was to take place at Ashby, in the county of Leicester, as champions of the first renown were to take the field in the presence of Prince John himself, who was expected to grace the lists, had attracted universal attention, and an immense confluence of persons of all ranks hastened upon the appointed morning to the place of combat. The scene was singularly romantic. On the verge of a wood, which approached to within a mile of the town of Ashby, was an extensive meadow, of the finest and most beautiful green turf, surrounded on one side by the forest, and fringed on the other by straggling oak-trees, some of which had grown to an immense size. The ground, as if fashioned on purpose for the martial display which was intended, sloped gradually down on all sides to a level bottom, which was enclosed for the lists with strong palisades, forming a space of a quarter of a mile in length, and about half as broad. The form of the enclosure was an oblong square, save that the corners were considerably rounded off, in order to afford more convenience for the spectators. The openings for the entry of the combatants were at the northern and southern extremities of the lists, accessible by strong wooden gates, each wide enough to admit two horsemen riding abreast. At each of these portals were stationed two heralds, attended by six trumpets, as many pursuivants, and a strong body of men-at-arms, for maintaining order, and ascertaining the quality of the knights who proposed to engage in this martial game. On a platform beyond the southern entrance, formed by a natural elevation of the ground, were pitched five magnificent pavilions, adorned with pennons of russet and black, the chosen colours of the five knights' challengers. The cords of the tents were of the same colour. Before each pavilion was suspended the shield of the knight by whom it was occupied, and beside it stood his squire, quaintly disguised as a salvage or sylvan man, or in some other fantastic dress, according to the taste of his master, the character he was pleased to assume during the game. Begin Note this sort of masquerade is supposed to have occasioned the introduction of supporters into the science of heraldry. End note. The central pavilion, as the place of honour, had been assigned to Brian de Bois-Gilbert, whose renown in all games of chivalry, no less than his connections with the knights who had undertaken this passage of arms, 
had occasioned him to be eagerly received into the company of the challengers, and even adopted as their chief and leader, though he had so recently joined them. On one side of his tent were pitched those of Reginald Frontbeuf and Richard de Malvoisin, and on the other was a pavilion of Hugh de Grand Mesnil, a noble baron in the vicinity, whose ancestor had been Lord High Steward of England in the time of the Conqueror, and his son William Rufus, Ralph de Vipon, a knight of St. John of Jerusalem, who had some ancient possessions at a place called Heather, near Ashby de la Zouche, occupied the fifth pavilion. From the entrance into the lists, a gently sloping passage ten yards in breadth led up to the platform on which the tents were pitched. It was strongly secured by a palisade on each side, as was the esplanade in front of the pavilions, and the whole was guarded by men-at-arms. The northern access to the lists terminated in a similar entrance, of thirty feet in breadth, at the extremity of which was a large enclosed space for such knights as might be disposed to enter the lists with the challengers, behind which were placed tents containing refreshments of every kind for their accommodation, with armourers, tarriers, and other attendants, in readiness to give their services wherever they might be necessary. The exterior of the lists was in part occupied by temporary galleries, spread with tapestry and carpets, and accommodated with cushions for the convenience of those ladies and nobles who were expected to attend the tournament. A narrow space betwixt these galleries and the lists gave accommodation for yeomanry and spectators of a better degree than the mere vulgar, and might be compared to the pit of a theatre. The promiscuous multitude arranged themselves upon large banks of turf, prepared for the purpose which, aided by the natural elevation of the ground, enabled them to overlook the galleries, and obtain a fair view into the lists. Besides the accommodation which these stations afforded, many hundreds had perched themselves on the branches of the trees which surrounded the meadow, and even the steeple of a country church at some distance was crowded with spectators. It only remains to notice respecting the general arrangement that one gallery in the very centre of the eastern side of the lists, and consequently exactly opposite to the spot where the shock of the combat was to take place, was raised higher than the others, more richly decorated, and graced by a sort of throne and canopy on which the royal arms were emblazoned. Squires, pages, and yeomen in rich liveries waited around this place of honour, which was designed for Prince John and his attendants. Opposite to this royal gallery was another elevated to the same height on the western side of the lists, and more gaily if less sumptuously decorated than that destined for the prince himself. A train of pages and of young maidens, the most beautiful who could be selected, gaily dressed in fancy habits of green and pink, surrounded a throne decorated in the same colours. Among pennons and flags bearing wounded hearts, burning hearts, bleeding hearts, bows and quivers, and all the commonplace emblems of the triumphs of Cupid, a blazoned inscription informed the spectators that this seat of honour was designed for la reine de la spéote de les amours. But who was to represent the queen of beauty and of love on the present occasion, no one was prepared to guess. Meanwhile, spectators of every description thronged forward to occupy their respective stations, 
and not without many quarrels concerning those which they were entitled to hold. Some of these were settled by the men-at-arms, with brief ceremony, the shafts of their battle-axes and pummels of their swords being readily employed as arguments to convince the more refractory. Others which involved the rival claims of more elevated persons were determined by the heralds or by the two marshals of the field, William de Weevil and Stephen de Martaville, who, armed at all points, rode up and down the lists to enforce and preserve good order among the spectators. Gradually the galleries became filled with knights and nobles in their robes of peace, whose long and rich-tinted mantles were contrasted with the gayer and more splendid habits of the ladies, who, in a greater proportion than even the men themselves, thronged to witness a sport which one would have thought too bloody and dangerous to afford their sex much pleasure. The lower and interior space was soon filled by substantial yeomen and burghers, and such of the lesser gentry as, from modesty, poverty, or dubious title, durst not assume any higher place. It was, of course, amongst these that the most frequent disputes for precedence occurred. "'Dog of an unbeliever!' said an old man, whose threadbare tunic bore witness to his poverty as his sword and dagger and golden chain intimated his pretensions to rank. "'Whelp of a she-wolf!' Darest thou press upon a Christian and a Norman gentleman of the blood of Montdelier? This rough expostulation was addressed to no other than our acquaintance Isaac, who, richly and even magnificently dressed, in a gabardine ornamented with lace and lined with fur, was endeavouring to make place in the foremost row beneath the gallery for his daughter, the beautiful Rebecca, who had joined him at Ashby and who was now hanging on her father's arm, not a little terrified by the popular displeasure which seemed generally excited by her parents' presumption. But Isaac, though we have seen him sufficiently timid on other occasions, knew well that at present he had nothing to fear. It was not in places of general resort, or where their equals were assembled, that any avaricious or malvolent noble durst offer him injury. At such meetings the Jews were under the protection of the general law, and if that proved a weak assurance, it usually happened that there were among the persons assembled some barons who, for their own interested motives, were ready to act as their protectors. On the present occasion Isaac felt more than usually confident, being aware that Prince John was even then in the very act of negotiating a large loan from the Jews of York, to be secured upon certain jewels and lands. Isaac's own share in this transaction was considerable, and he well knew that the prince's eager desire to bring it to a conclusion would ensure him his protection in the dilemma in which he stood. Emboldened by these considerations, the Jew pursued his point, and jostled the Norman Christian without respect either to his descent, quality, or religion. The complaints of the old man, however, excited the indignation of the bystanders. One of these, a stout, well-set yeoman, arrayed in Lincoln green, having twelve arrows stuck in his belt with a baldric and a badge of silver, and a bow of six feet length in his hand, turned short round, and while his countenance, which his constant exposure to weather had rendered brown as a hazelnut, grew darker with anger, he advised the Jew to remember that all the wealth he had acquired by sucking the blood of his miserable victims had but swelled him like a bloated spider, which might be overlooked while he kept in a comer, but would be crushed if it ventured into the light. 
This intimation, delivered in Norman English, with a firm voice and a stern aspect, made the Jew shrink back, and he would have probably withdrawn himself altogether from a vicinity so dangerous, had not the attention of every one been called to the sudden entrance of Prince John, who at that moment entered the lists, attended by a numerous and gay train, consisting partly of laymen, partly of churchmen, as light in their dress and as gay in their demeanour as their companions. Among the latter was the prior of Jorvaux in the most gallant trim which a dignitary of the church could venture to exhibit. Fur and gold were not spared in his garments, and the points of his boots, out-heroding the preposterous fashion of the time, turned up so very far as to be attached not to his knees merely, but to his very girdle, and effectually prevented him from putting his foot into the stirrup. This, however, was a slight inconvenience to the gallant abbot, who, perhaps even rejoicing in the opportunity to display his accomplished horsemanship before so many spectators, especially of the fair sex, dispensed with the use of these supports to a timid rider. The rest of Prince John's retinue consisted of the favourite leaders of his mercenary troops, some marauding barons and profligate attendants upon the court, with several knights templars, and knights of St. John. It may be here remarked that the knights of these two orders were accounted hostile to King Richard, having adopted the side of Philip of France in the long train of disputes which took place in Palestine betwixt that monarch and the lion-hearted King of England. It was the well-known consequence of this discord that Richard's repeated victories had been rendered fruitless, his romantic attempts to besiege Jerusalem disappointed, and the fruit of all the glory which he had acquired had dwindled into an uncertain truce with the Sultan Saladin. With the same policy which had dictated the conduct of their brethren in the Holy Land, the Templars and Hospitallers in England and Normandy attached themselves to the faction of Prince John, having little reason to desire the return of Richard to England, or the succession of Arthur, his legitimate heir. For the opposite reason, Prince John hated and contemned the few Saxon families of consequence which subsisted in England, and omitted no opportunity of mortifying and affronting them, being conscious that his person and pretensions were disliked by them, as well as by the greater part of the English commons, who feared farther innovation upon their rights and liberties, from a sovereign of John's licentious and tyrannical disposition. Attended by this gallant equipage, himself well mounted and splendidly dressed in crimson and in gold, bearing upon his hand a falcon, and having his head covered by a rich fur bonnet, adorned with a circle of precious stones, from which his long curled hair escaped and overspread his shoulders, Prince John upon a grey and high-mettled palfrey, caracoled within the lists at the head of his jovial party, laughing loud with his train, and eyeing with all the boldness of royal criticism the beauties who adorned the lofty galleries. Those who were remarked in the physiognomy of the prince a dissolute audacity, mingled with extreme haughtiness and indifference to the feelings of others who could not yet deny to his countenance that sort of comeliness which belongs to an open set of features, well formed by nature, modelled by art to the usual rules of courtesy, yet so frank and honest, that they seemed as if they disclaimed to conceal the natural workings of the soul. 
such an expression is often mistaken for manly frankness, when in truth it arises from the reckless indifference of a libertine disposition, conscious of superiority of birth, of wealth, or of some other adventitious advantage, totally unconnected with personal merit. To those who did not think so deeply, and they were the greater number by a hundred to one, the splendor of Prince John's Renault, i.e. fur trippet, the richness of his cloak, lined with the most costly sables, his Marocain boots and golden spurs, together with the grace with which he managed his palfrey, were sufficient to merit clamorous applause. In his joyous caracol round the lists, the attention of the prince was called by the commotion, not yet subsided, which had attended the ambitious movement of Isaac towards the higher places of the assembly. The quick eye of Prince John instantly recognized the Jew, but was much more agreeably attracted by the beautiful daughter of Zion, who, terrified by the tumult, clung close to the arm of her aged father. The figure of Rebecca might indeed have compared with the proudest beauties of England, even though it had been judged by as shrewd a connoisseur as Prince John. Her form was exquisitely symmetrical, and was shown to advantage by a sort of eastern dress, which she wore according to the fashion of the females of her nation. Her turban of yellow silk suited well with the darkness of her complexion. The brilliancy of her eyes, the superb arch of her eyebrows, her well-formed aquiline nose, her teeth as white as pearl, and the profusion of her sable tresses which, each arranged in its own little spiral of twisted curls, fell down upon as much of a lovely neck and bosom as a simar of the richest Persian silk, exhibiting flowers in their natural colors embossed upon a purple ground, permitted to be visible, all these constituted a combination of loveliness, which yielded not to the most beautiful of the maidens who surrounded her. It is true that of the golden and pearl-studded clasps, which closed her vest from the throat to the waist, the three uppermost were left unfastened on account of the heat, which something enlarged the prospect to which we allude. A diamond necklace, with pendants of inestimable value, were by this means also made more conspicuous. The feather of an ostrich, fastened in her turban by an agraffe set with brilliants, was another distinction of the beautiful Jewess scoffed and sneered at by the proud dames who sat above her, but secretly envied by those who affected to deride them. "'By the bald scalp of Abraham,' said Prince John, "'yonder Jewess must be the very model of that perfection, whose charms drove frantic the wisest king that ever lived.' "'What sayest thou, Prior Aymer? By the temple of that wise king which our wiser brother Richard proved unable to recover.' She is the very bride of the canticles. "'The rose of Sharon, and the lily of the valley,' answered the prior, in a sort of snuffling tone. "'But your grace must remember she is still but a Jewess.' "'Aye,' added Prince John, without heeding him. "'And there is my mammon of unrighteousness, too, the Marquis of Marks, the Baron of Byzance, contesting for her place with penniless dogs.' whose threadbare cloaks have not a single cross in their pouches to keep the devil from dancing there. By the body of St. Mark, my prince of supplies, with his lovely Jewess, shall have a place in that gallery. 
What is she, Isaac, thy wife, or thy daughter, that eastern houri that thou lockest under thy arm as thou wouldst thy treasure-casket? My daughter, Rebecca, so please your grace, answered Isaac, with a low congee, nothing embarrassed by the prince's salutation, in which, however, there was at least as much mockery as courtesy. The wiser man thou, said John, with a peal of laughter, in which his gay followers obsequiously joined. But, daughter or wife, she should be preferred according to her beauty and thy merits. Who sits above there? he continued, bending his eye on the gallery. Saxon churls, lolling at their lazy length, out upon them! Let them sit close, and make room for my prince of usurers and his lovely daughter. I'll make the hinds know they must share the high places of the synagogue with those whom the synagogue properly belongs to. Those who occupied the gallery to whom this injurious and unpolite speech was addressed were the family of Cedric the Saxon, with that of his ally and kinsman, Athelstane of Cunningsburg, a personage who, on account of his descent from the last Saxon monarchs of England, was held in the highest respect by all the Saxon natives of the north of England. But with the blood of this ancient royal race, many of their infirmities had descended to Athelstane. He was comely in countenance, bulky and strong in person, and in the flower of his age, yet inanimate in expression, dull-eyed, heavy-browed, inactive, and sluggish in all his motions, and so slow in resolution, that the sobriquet of one of his ancestors was conferred upon him, and he was very generally called Athelstane the Unready. His friends, and he had many, who, as well as Cedric, were passionately attached to him, contended that this sluggish temper arose not from want of courage, but from mere want of decision. Others alleged that his hereditary vice of drunkenness had obscured his faculties, never of a very acute order, and that the passive courage and meek good nature which remained behind were merely the dregs of a character that might have been deserving of praise, but of which all the valuable parts had flown off in the progress of a long course of brutal debauchery. It was to this person, such as we have described him, that the prince addressed his imperious command to make place for Isaac and Rebecca. Athelstane, utterly confounded at an order which the manners and the feelings of the times rendered so injuriously insulting, unwilling to obey, yet undetermined how to resist, opposed only the vis insertiae to the will of John, and, without stirring or making any motion whatever of obedience, opened his large grey eyes, and stared at the prince, with an astonishment which had in it something extremely ludicrous. But the impatient John regarded it in no such light. "'The Saxon porker,' he said, "'is either asleep or minds me not. Prick him with your lance, de Bracy.' Speaking to a knight who rode near him, the leader of a band of free companions or condottieri, that is, of mercenaries belonging to no particular nation, but attached for a time to any prince by whom they were paid. There was a murmur even among the attendants of Prince John, but de Bracy, whose profession freed him from all scruples, extended his long lance over the space which separated the gallery from the lists, and would have executed the commands of the prince before Athelstane the Unready had recovered presence of mind sufficient even to draw back his person from the weapon, had not Cedric, as prompt as his companion was tardy, unsheathed with the speed of lightning, 
the short sword which he wore, and at a single blow severed the point of the lance from the handle. The blood rushed into the countenance of Prince John. He swore one of his deepest oaths, and was about to utter some threat corresponding in violence, when he was diverted from his purpose, partly by his own attendants, who gathered around him, conjuring him to be patient, partly by a general exclamation of the crowd, uttered in loud applause of the spirited conduct of Cedric. The prince rolled his eyes in indignation, as if to collect some safe and easy victim and chancing to encounter the firm glance of the same archer whom we have already noticed, and who seemed to persist in his gesture of applause, in spite of the frowning aspect which the prince bent upon him, he demanded his reason for clamouring thus. "'I always add my hollow,' said the yeoman, "'when I see a good shot or a gallant blow.' "'Sayest thou,' answered the prince, "'then thou canst hit the white thyself, I'll warrant.' "'A woodsman's mark, at a woodsman's distance I can hit,' answered the yeoman. "'And what Tyrrell's mark, at a hundred yards?' said a voice from behind, but by whom uttered could not be discerned. This allusion to the fate of William Rufus, his relative, at once incensed and alarmed Prince John. He satisfied himself, however, with commanding the men-at-arms, who surrounded the lists, to keep an eye on the braggart, pointing to the yeoman, by St. Grizzle he added, we will try his own skill, who is so ready to give his voice to the feats of others. "'I shall not fly the trial,' said the yeoman, with the composure which marked his whole deportment. "'Meanwhile, stand up, ye Saxon churls,' said the fiery prince, "'for by the light of heaven, since I have said it, the Jew shall have his seat amongst ye.' "'By no means, an it please your grace. It is not fit for such as—' "'We to sit with the rulers of the land,' said the Jew, whose ambition for precedence, though it had led him to dispute place, with the extenuated and impoverished descendant of the line of Montdidier, by no means stimulated him to an intrusion upon the privileges of the wealthy Saxons. "'Up, infidel dog, when I command you,' said Prince John, "'or I will have thy swarthy hide stripped off, and tanned for horse-furniture.' Thus urged, the Jew began to ascend the steep and narrow steps which led up to the gallery. "'Let me see,' said the prince, "'who dare stop him?' Fixing his eye on Cedric, whose attitude intimated his intention to hurl the Jew down headlong. The catastrophe was prevented by the clown Wamba, who, springing betwixt his master and Isaac, and exclaiming in answer to the prince's defiance, "'Mary, that will I!' opposed to the beard of the Jew a shield of brawn, which he plucked from beneath his cloak, and with which, doubtless, he had furnished himself, lest the tournament should have proved longer than his appetite could endure abstinence. Finding the abomination of his tribe opposed to his very nose, while the jester at the same time flourished his wooden sword above his head, the Jew recoiled, missed his footing, and rolled down the steps. An excellent jest to the spectators, who set up a loud laughter, in which Prince John and his attendants heartily joined. "'Deal me the prize, cousin Prince,' said Wamba. "'I have vanquished my foe in fair fight with sword and shield,' he added, brandishing the brawn in one hand and the wooden sword in the other. "'Who and what art thou, noble champion?' said Prince John, still laughing. "'A fool by right of descent.' answered the jester, 
I am Wamba, the son of Witless, who was the son of Weatherbrain, who was the son of Alderman. Make room for the Jew in front of the lower ring, said Prince John, not unwilling, perhaps, to seize an apology to desist from his original purpose. To place the vanquished beside the victor were false heraldry. Knave upon fool were worse, answered the jester, and Jew upon bacon worst of all. Gramercy, good fellow, cried Prince John. Thou pleasest me. Here, Isaac, lend me a handful of byzants. As the Jew, stunned by the request, afraid to refuse, and unwilling to comply, fumbled in the furred bag which hung by his girdle, and was perhaps endeavouring to ascertain how few coins might pass for a handful, the prince stooped from his genet, and settled Isaac's doubts by snatching the pouch itself from his side, and flinging to Wamba a couple of the gold pieces which it contained. He pursued his career round the lists, leaving the Jew to the derision of those around him, and himself receiving as much applause from the spectators as if he had done some honest and honourable action. End of chapter 7